Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu with me and Musa, Tracy Bumgard and in our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. Deadly violence continues in the Central African Republic. UN urges countries to stop paying ransoms to terrorist groups. And African countries urge to fully fund AU programs. In economics, Samsung sets new smartphone sales record. And in sports news, Winter Olympics athletes followed to make allowed to make political statement. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Lack of communication between rebels and the leaders is hampering the implementation of the recently signed ceasefire in South Sudan. Last week, the South Sudan government and rebels signed an agreement on the cessation of hostility. Speaking on the sidelines of the AU ministerial meeting in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa, South Sudan's Minister of Information, Banaba Mariel, said fighting was still continuing between government troops and rebels as rebel leaders failed to communicate the Addis Ababa peace agreement to the members. The president and the government are committed to the agreement that we have signed with the rebels regarding the cessation of hostilities and the release of detainees according to the laws of the Republic of South Sudan. We are completely committed to it. But as you know, the rebels have no command and control, not even means of communications to where the various rebel groups are. Communication is a bit difficult on that side. That's why we say, yes, we have signed the cessation of hostilities, but are the rebels in control? That's why there is sometimes violation in some cases. So I believe after some time's they will be able to inform rebel troops so that they stop shooting at government forces. Sudan's President Umar al-Bashir has called on the nation to take part in the political and economic renaissance of the country. Al-Bashir says the renaissance must address four areas, peace, political freedom, poverty reduction and Sudanese identity. The speech to the country's political parties, cabinet members and foreign diplomats at a conference is the latest call al-Bashir has made for a broad political dialogue. It follows a December 2013 cabinet shuffle, which analysts said was aimed at calming down protesters who took to the streets in September after the government slashed fuel subsidies. Suspected Nigerian militant group Boko Haram has reportedly shot dead more than 60 people in two separate attacks in northeast Nigeria. Militants armed with explosives and guns attacked Kawari village in Bono State on Sunday night. A state security official says 52 people died and the entire village was burned down, including 300 homes. Also on Sunday, suspected militants stormed a church service in Wadachakawa village in Adamawa State, south of Bono. They set off bombs and fired into the congregation 
killing dozens of people before burning houses and taking residents hostage during a five-hour siege. Officials have reportedly recovered 45 bodies, including two police officers. The situation in the Central African Republic is worsening as fighting resumes between former Sileka rebels and militias. The warning comes from the office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights in Geneva. Spokesperson for the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Cecil Poheli, says a number of former Sileka and Muslim civilians are reported to be fleeing towards the north of the country. Since about a week ago, clashes have restarted between anti-Seleka and ex-Seleka supported by uh, armed Muslim civilians in several Bengi neighborhoods. And after those clashes, mobs have been looting Muslim shops, homes, as well as mosques. So um, there's been a number of ex-Seleka and Muslim civilians who decided to flee towards the north of the country. As efforts to secure the release of a South African teacher, Pierre Korki, in Yemen continue, the UN Security Council has passed a resolution calling on member states to prevent Al-Qaeda-linked groups from benefiting from ransom payments. Sharon Bryce Peace reports from New York. The unanimous passing of the resolution creates no new legal obligations, but draws greater attention to a practice that's on the rise with lead author the United Kingdom pointing out that Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups have collected more than one billion rand over the last three and a half years through ransom payments. Ambassador Mark Lyle Grant conceded that individual cases do present member states with very difficult dilemmas, but emphasized the need to suffocate terror financing as a broad principle. The resolution is under Chapter 6 of the UN Charter and, unlike Chapter 7, is not enforceable as a legal instrument. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you. And it's 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Central African Republic is at a critical juncture. The United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Navi Pillay, warned yesterday. The country has been plagued by an ongoing crisis that started when rebels attacked government forces in December 2012 and the fighting is continuing. The conflict has divided the Muslim against Christian communities. One of the Muslim groups is called the Seleka. Patrick Maigua spoke to Cecile Pueli from the Human Rights Office to get an update on the situation. Well, because not only there is renewed fighting in the country over the last few days, but also because we see a number of ex-Seleka and Muslim civilians now fleeing towards the north of the country. So the situation is really worsening and it's getting even more dangerous than it was before. And why are these people fleeing towards the north of the country? Well, since about a week ago, clashes have restarted between anti-Seleka and ex-Seleka supported by uh, armed Muslim civilians in several Bengi neighborhoods. And after those clashes, mobs have been looting Muslim shops, homes, as well as mosques. So um, there's been a number of ex-Seleka and Muslim civilians who decided to flee towards the north of the country. Have you been able to establish the number? Is it significant? 
No, unfortunately, we're not able to assess the situation in terms of numbers because, as you know, it's extremely volatile, extremely fluid and dangerous. However, we also have received reports of very serious incidents of violence beyond Bangui in several towns on the way to the north. What is happening in some of these towns? Well, in Bois, for example, despite the presence of the African peacekeeping troops, there have been clashes reported between Exeleka and Antibalaka on January 20 and 21, and several civilians as well as Exeleka fighters were killed. From what we've heard now, Antibalaka now controls the town, which has been mainly deserted, and Antibalaka have now threatened international organizations that are sheltering the Muslim relatives of their Staff. It's just one case in Bois, but we've also heard allegations of a town nearby Bois, which is called Baora, where Antibalaka reportedly attacked Muslim civilians recently, less than a week ago, and they've killed allegedly at least 80 people and injured several hundred people. So we can see the situation is really getting even worse. Some of these towns have been attacked despite the presence of African Union peacekeepers. Are they unable to? deal with the crisis what's happening I cannot talk on behalf of the African peacekeeping troops. Obviously, they've deployed people. For instance, in Bangui, we know that Rwandan troops were present in several neighborhoods, and they tried to calm down the situation. Now, it's very difficult to control those mobs, and we understand that they were trying to disarm people who were wearing ammunitions and weapons, but they couldn't stop, really, the looting because it was extremely large. Now, the country has appointed a new head of state, Catherine Samba, Panza, and she has called for an end to the violence. Is her message not being received effectively by the rebel groups? Well, we welcome this appointment, obviously, and her calls for an end to the violence. Now, obviously, the situation is extremely complex. We've also noticed that there is a proliferation of armed groups. So restoring security is a really huge challenge now, but very much needed. So every effort in that direction is more than welcome, and we hope this appointment can help help improve the situation, but the reality is that it's a very complex situation, it's a very difficult one. That was Cecile Poirier from the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights talking to Patrick Maigua. Lack of communication between rebels and their leaders is hampering the implementation of the recently signed ceasefire in South Sudan. Last week, the South Sudan government and rebels signed an agreement on the secession of hostility. But speaking on the sidelines of the AU ministerial meeting in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa, South Sudan's Minister of Information, Banaba Marial, said fighting is still continuing as rebel leaders fail to communicate the Addis Ababa peace agreement to their members. Ndebo Mugobo has more. Fierce fighting erupted in the world's newest nation in mid-December last year after President Salva Kiir accused former Vice President Riek Macha, whom he fired in July of trying to stage a coup, a charge Macha denies. And since violence began, almost half a million people are said to have fled their homes. Last week, government and the rebels signed a ceasefire to end five weeks of fighting, which has claimed almost 10,000 people. In an exclusive interview with the SAPC, South Sudan's Information Minister Banaba Marial said it is difficult to fully implement the ceasefire agreement as rebel leaders fail to communicate it to their members. The president and the leadership and the government are committed to the agreement that we have signed with the rebels regarding the cessation of hostilities 
and the release of detainees according to the laws of the Republic of South Sudan. We are completely uh, committed to it. But as you know, the rebels have no command and control, not even means of communications to where the various uh, rebel groups are. They don't have an even communication system. Uh, we doubt whether Dr. Riak himself can be able to control them because he's not communicating to them. There's no means for that. So communication is a bit difficult on that side. That's why we say, yes, we have signed the cessation of hostilities, but are the rebels in control? And that is the problem. That's why there is sometimes violation in some cases. So I believe after some times maybe they will be able to inform the rebel troops so that they stop shooting at government forces. Now one issue that is threatening the implementation of the ceasefire agreement is the arrest of some rebel leaders. The rebels are demanding the release of 11 political leaders, including former ministers and the suspended secretary general of the Sudan's People's Liberation Movement Party, Pagan Amum. The 11 were important members of the SPLM whom became dissatisfied with President Salva Kiir. After meeting with President Kiir, chairperson of the AU Commission, Dr. Nkosa Sanatlamene Zuma, said she is confident peace is on the horizon in South Sudan. We had a very constructive and very helpful discussion with the president and he informed us that uh, as soon as the agreement is reached, he has no problem signing the ceasefire and he has also uh, allowed us to go and see the detainees and talk to them and hear from them and that he would fully cooperate with the commission of inquiry for accountability, looking at all the issues around reconciliation, peace building, strengthening of institutions. With so many civilians displaced, Minister Panaba Marial said the country is in desperate need of humanitarian aid, especially for those returning to their homes. The incident has caused we have nearly half a million people already displaced from their homes, women and children, nearly 86,000 to 100,000 have crossed to neighboring countries. So it is a real displacement. So we are actually appealing for humanitarian assistance and that's why we have the cessation of hostilities so that we get the stability and allow the humanitarian work to go in and allow citizens to go back to their homes and for once to have peace in their lives. Uh, so the humanitarian work is, is at the top of the list in our discussion with those rebels. Food, water and shelter are increasingly in short supply and the United Nations is looking for almost 210 million U.S. dollars for the most immediate needs of which 104 million have been funded so far. Displacement is continuing, and currently northern Uganda, Sarua and Ajumani districts, more than a thousand South Sudanese refugees, mostly women and children, arrive every day. Ntebu Mokobov in the Ethiopian capital, Adi Sababa. The United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, says appalling conditions in South Sudan's displacement camps threaten the lives of children who have survived the violent conflict. A measles outbreak has been reported outside Boar Town in Jongle State and several other towns in the country, resulting in at least 30 child deaths. Although immunization campaigns are underway in camps, overcrowding proves to be going against efforts to contain the outbreaks of the disease. UNICEF's chief of health in South Sudan, Monjur Hussein, has more. You know, this measles outbreak, actually, it's nothing new in South Sudan. Every year we experience measles outbreak in some scale. But this outbreak this year is mainly in the IDPs. And, you know, measles is a very contagious disease. The virus has spread through contact. It's a airborne disease. One of the major causes of this, if the child is not protected with measles immunization, then there is a chance of the spread from one child to another child. And the probability of the 
contamination of disease increased when there is overcrowding and the mix-up of children with the unprotected accumulated children uh, because of low measles immunization coverage in South Sudan. Perhaps you know that South Sudan is one of the few countries where the routine immunization services has not yet developed that well to have a better coverage of measles vaccination in general. So all the children are now in the IDPs and that has increased the chance of contamination of the disease. And the current outbreak in IDP sites, just how serious is it in terms of casualties? Well, we have received the confirmation up to today according to WHO surveillance report that up to now it's a total of 30 confirmed cases of measles in different IDPs. Although we have conducted initially a measles vaccination campaign in some of the IDPs in Juba, in Bentiu, but still we have been receiving the suspected measles outbreak and now that has been confirmed through the laboratory investigation done through WSO surveillance reporting. In terms of the fatality, out of this outbreak in Juba or in Bentiu or other places, we haven't received any death due to measles. However, we received the, it's unconfirmed with the laboratory, the death from the Boer IDPs where several children died. But to date, we received information that a total of 38 children died, but that's not because of measles. That's because of many other causes like pneumonia, diarrhea, severe dehydration, Yeah, so these are the main causes and malaria also. So these are not all about measles causes. And you know, measles do not kill child directly. Measles is a disease that creates complications with infection like pneumonia or septicemia or other form of infection. And that kills the children. It's not the measles that kill directly the children. And finally, you've already mentioned that UNICEF is conducting measles vaccination campaign. But what are the challenges UNICEF is facing in trying to reach out to as many children as possible? Well, you know, we've been actually trying to respond as much as we can, depending on all this, all this constraint, in particular the security constraints, the access constraints, the logistical constraints to move logistics, because a lot of our warehouses are looted. Our warehouses in Malakal, in Bentiu, in Bor is completely destroyed and looted. So uh, managing the logistic and immunization is a logistic-driven intervention. We need to organize an immunization session. We need a lot of logistical preparations, the vaccines, the AD cylinders, the cold chain, cold boxes, and it's, it's a teamwork. So there are constraints in the front of security, in the front of access as well. Despite all these constraints, we were able to manage to start the campaign in Juba, all the IDPs in Juba. We completed the campaign in Bentiu. We started the campaign in Aurel, and also we just jumped into the window of uh, security access in Bor. That was Monjur Hussein, Chief of Health at the United Nations Children's Fund office in South Sudan, on the line from Juba, talking to Channel Africa's Jane Matebula. It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. If you have any comments or would like to find out any, ask us any questions, you're welcome to send us an email at info.channelafrica.org. You can also get a hold of us on our Twitter handle, which is at Channel Africa. Channel Africa 1 or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 Africa Rise and Shine Africa Zorza Africa Amuka Na 
unai. Peace talks on Syria have been continuing in Geneva as government and opposition negotiators resume face-to-face discussions on the future of the conflict-ravaged country. Over 100,000 people have been killed in the three-year civil war and around 11 million people are in need of humanitarian aid in and outside the country. The two delegations are negotiating in line with a key document, the June 2012 Geneva communique, which calls for for the establishment of a transitional authority. Daniel Dickinson has more. Peace talks on Syria have been continuing in Geneva as government and opposition negotiators resume face-to-face discussions on the future of the conflict-ravaged country. Over 100,000 people have been killed in the three-year civil war and around 11 million people are in need of humanitarian aid in and outside the country. The two delegations are negotiating in line with a key document, the June 2012 Geneva communique, which calls for the establishment of a transitional authority. The joint UN and Arab League special envoy, Lagdar Brahimi, has been mediating discussions. He said on Monday he met the two groups separately and then, once again, together in the same room. A key issue has been to alleviate the suffering of Syrians stranded in the besieged city of Homs. Mr Brahimi said there has been little progress in evacuating people from the city. Humanitarian discussions haven't produced much, unfortunately. There was an agreement by the government that uh, women and children can come out of the old city in Homs. I think they are still discussing how that should be done. I think the government is willing to make it happen, but uh, it's not easy because there are snipers and there are all sorts of problems. An agreement had been made on Saturday and Sunday between the government and opposition forces to allow an aid convoy into Homs. But Mr. Brahimi said that had also not taken place. The convoy of food and non-food items and medical supplies, uh, there is no, no decision yet to let them in. Mr. Brahimi said the situation in Syria has become extremely complex and that it was too early to predict how long the negotiations will last. But he said they will continue. There is apparently the will to continue these discussions you know once again i tell you you know we we, we never expected uh, any miracle there there are no miracles here we will we will continue and see uh, if progress can be made and when while discussions continue over the humanitarian situation the geneva communique remains the basis for syria's future a future which includes, in the short term, a transitional government at the forefront of a new era for the country. Daniel Dickinson, United Nations. The African Union is looking at solidifying its efforts towards an integrated economic system on the continent. This, according to the UN, is the only way Africa will uplift its economy, improve trade and compete on a level ground with other states internationally. Coletta Wanjohi reports. Africa is blessed with an enormous variety of natural resources and yet its people continue to grapple with poverty. 
As the continent begins its journey towards its 2063 agenda, the continent is also ready to put more effort to see that all trade and industry-related policies are effected as planned by the heads of state. The Commissioner for Trade and Industry, Fatima Haram, says that a continent with a strong voice in trade internationally can only be achieved if the continent moves away from the culture of dependency in commodity and unprocessed raw materials. We have to change our mentality in order for us to understand that we're not poor. We're rich, actually. And then how do we transform it? How do we make sure that you know, we have a win-win partnership so that we can make sure that we can create the economic transformation that we want to see. Statistics show that in the next 10 years, 25% of the world youth under 30 years will be living in sub-Saharan Africa. The African Union Commissioner for Trade and Industry, Fatima Haram, says that this high population of youth is an advantage to the continent. She says that with the right skills, health and guidance, the youth in Africa can steer economic development in the continent. By doing this, this will diminish the migration of our people to other continents. You have the case of Lampedusa. All of you are aware. Africans are dying on the seas. They're going and so forth. I think that we need to address this in order for us also that our people will feel more confident in their own continent and working in their own countries. Even with the great vision for Africa on trade towards the year 2063, there are still challenges that tend to reduce the desired pace. Dependence on foreign funding is a great hurdle since funding partners come with conditions that favor them more. In addition, failure of the continent to eliminate non-trade barriers and the unequal development levels in different countries makes it hard for the continent to integrate for a common economic good. Kuletuanjoi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It's 8.25 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You're welcome to get a hold of us at our Twitter handle with comments, which is at Channel Africa 1. You can also send us an email, which is info at channelafrica.org, or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A civil society grouping dealing with the African Union and its organs says unless African heads of state live up to their obligation of fully funding the programs of the Continental Union, declarations of an African renaissance, regional integration, peace and security, as well as trade and infrastructure will remain elusive. The Open Society Foundation attributes this to what it calls the inadequate funding of the African Union, particularly from its members. For more on this, our reporter and Lantlamatlangu caught up with Jürgen Gray Johnson, Advocacy and Information Officer for the Open Society Foundation in Addis Ababa. Well, generally the issue is about um, an African citizenry-driven um, project, um, the Africa Union that we want. And uh, the clarion call that was made by civil society organizations yesterday focused on the issue of uh, living up to promises made and commitments made um, over, over the institution building, for example, the Pan-African Parliament, the African Union Commission, the Advisory Board Against Corruption, and the other 43 treaties and mechanisms. 
And uh, the, the call or the, the, the issue that we, 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 we're focusing on here is basically to state that all of this needs resourcing. And evidence has actually shown that over 50% of the African Union's budget is not supplied or financed by Africans themselves. And we find this ironic because then the question that you have to ask is, if your budget is, not being, is being financed by outsiders that are non-Africans, how are you able to now influence your own African agenda moving forward? So now, as a civil society, what is it that you'd like to see the heads of states or the African Union rather do with regards to the issue of funding? Well, the issue, well what we're saying is that um, the lopsided balance um, of the over 50% that's being funded by outsiders, namely the, um, um, the, the European Union and others, especially you know, the Chinese as well, the building that we're in currently today was actually donated to us. Um, prior, as a priority, that, has, that lopsided um, ratio has to change. We have to at least be seen to be funding most of the, most of the programs and the projects that we have as an African Union. Um, secondly, also, I think it's imperative that uh, the member states that refuse to live up to their financial obligations and actually pay up their dues do so immediately. Um, currently, as I'm speaking to you, there's um, consideration around the room as to whether seven countries of the African Union should be suspended because they refuse to actually pay their dues. And we think that this is an embarrassment. And it also um, points to the lack of political will and commitment in um, living up to um, the, the promise that um, they will actually put their money where their mouths are and ensure that um, they actually fund um, the very many initiatives that um, they've actually taken upon themselves to deliver on behalf of the African citizenry. Now, as a civil society, going forward, what change would you like to see? Well, as I said, the funding issue is one, which is um, greater pol heightened political commitment and um, strong leadership to ensure that happens. Secondly, also, I think, you know, um, form follows function. And in this case, once the funding um, has been sorted out and um, um, there's, been, there's greater contribution, um, the funding mechanism has to be something that we need to discuss as well. Because to this date, um, there has not been any agreement as to what the funding strategy should be for the African Union. Um, aside from the entire dependence of donor funding and uh, the goodwill um, or the good faith exercised by um, the AU member states of uh, um, following up on their contributions, there's also little else that um, one can point to um, as a revenue um, um, earner or, or a stream of revenue that can come in to fund the multiple projects that the African Union has. So primarily there has to be a funding mechanism that everybody agrees to. What we are saying is there are lots of opportunities. Um, they should also look at the possibilities of appro appropriations coming from um, um, the usage of mobile telephony. Um, a certain percentage of that could go a long way in actually filling in the gaps, the budgetary gaps that we're seeing. And it's coming from African um, member states through these mobile telephonies, and it's basically us claiming ownership to ensure that this is ours and we're adequately funding it. Um, the second issue also, um, as I said, would be the commitment to now follow through on the many institutions, primarily the Pan-African Parliament, whereby a new protocol has to be debated, drafted, with the direct input of civil society to ensure that it moves and transforms from an advisory and consultative body to an actual legislative body tasked with legislating model laws, issues of citizenship, free movement and trade, and things like that. And this has been actually articulated in the Constitutive Act. The issue is now, what is stopping um, AU heads of state from following through on those commitments? This should have happened in 2009. It's uh, now 2014. 
It's been five years since um, the promise was made, and it, ha- and it hasn't happened. And uh, most importantly also, the issue of combating corruption um, has to be um, uppermost um, on the African agenda um, if we are to move forward. Um, issues of accountability actually hinge on this. And there's a wonderful... Um, um, idea of putting together a continental advisory board against corruption which we believe um, it's a wonderful idea now the time has come to actually give it its full support and its backing so that it, it, it's functional and operational and added to that the, the, the convention against corruption or convention combating corruption in the African continent um, has seen has seen some some positive steps whereby 34 countries have actually signed that now what we are saying is the rest of the country the rest of the 20 countries need to also ratify and sign like 34 have and not only that we need to go further to ensure that the cardinal principles, such as strengthening anti-corruption commissions, strengthening electoral management bodies, ensuring um, that um, there's greater understanding and, uh, and um, commitment and, uh, and political will to, 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 to fight um, impunity and corruption through a robust strategy on assets, um, assets recovery um, um, issues, and this has to do with us interfacing with the private sector and financial institutions. And these things are extremely important within this issue of moving forward to fight corruption in the African continent. So really we're looking at financing, institution building, and basically looking at um, greater partnerships and networking in order to meet some of the goals that have been set in moving the African continent forward. That was Yegan Gray Johnson, Advocacy and Information Officer for the Open Society Foundation, talking to Ntlantla Mahlangu at the AU headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And Musa's up next with the headlines. Good morning, Mozambique's Frelimo-led government and the main opposition party, Renamo, resume stalled talks. Lack of communication between rebels and the leaders hampers the implementation of the recently signed ceasefire in South Sudan. And women and children are still trapped in homes in Syria, despite an agreement by the government to allow them to come out of the besieged city. And those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. As efforts to secure the release of kidnapped South African teacher Pierre Corky in Yemen continue, the UN Security Council has just passed a resolution calling on the member states to prevent terrorists from benefiting directly or indirectly from ransom payments. The United Kingdom, which authored the text, estimates that Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups have, over the last three and a half years, collected more than $90 million in foreign national ransom payments, an average of $2 million per foreign hostage. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The result of the voting is as follows. The draft resolution received 15 votes in favor. The The unanimous passing of this resolution creates no new legal obligations, but draws greater attention to a practice that's on the rise, as the lead author on the text, the UK's Sir Mark Lyle Grant, explains. Action today by the Security Council illustrates the international community's commitment to tackling kidnap for ransom, which has become the most significant terrorist financing challenge and remains a terrible threat to nationals of all countries. 
The kidnappers of Pierre Korki are demanding over 30 million rand after he was taken in the city of Taiz, along with his wife Yolandi, who was released earlier this year. Ambassador Grant admitting that these cases present difficult challenges for member states. We recognize that kidnapping poses very difficult dilemmas and decisions for nation states. But we know that the whole question of terrorists raising money through kidnapping has become a major source, probably the major source of terrorist financing. It is a major challenge that we need to tackle. We need to break that cycle whereby the payment of ransoms strengthens terrorist groups and incentivizes them to do more kidnapping. So in the long term, we are certainly convinced that we have to stop paying uh, ransoms to terrorist groups. Grant says because the resolution is under Chapter 6 of the Charter and therefore not enforceable, it's up to member states to decide how to operationalize the text. Of course it is for individual member states to decide how to take this forward in their own domestic legislation and in their own policies. Uh, this is a Chapter 6 resolution. It is a binding resolution, um, but it is not a Chapter 7. It's not enforceable. There are not penalties built into it. It is encouraging those member states to work with private sector in these very difficult cases to find ways of securing the safe release of hostages, because that too is covered in this resolution. This resolution goes a long way to reaffirming previous UN texts that prohibit countries from financing terrorism now directly shining a spotlight on the payments of ransoms, which in essence does exactly that. But it provides little comfort for those seeking the release of their loved ones, who fear that not paying the ransom could almost certainly mean the demise of those being held against their will. Sherwin Bricebees at the United Nations, New York. A major trial aiming to cut the rate of tuberculosis among South Africa's gold miners did not reduce the number of cases or deaths from the lung disease. This is according to a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, a weekly general medical journal that publishes new medical research and reviews articles. Researchers from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine say the results demonstrate the scale of the TB problem in South African gold mines and highlights the need for a combination prevention approach to improve TB control. More from Alison Grant, Professor of International Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. TB has been a big problem in gold mines for a long time and we know that some of the main reasons for that are to do with many miners living and working closely together and also silica dust disease and all of that was made worse by HIV. So we've got very high rates of TB among gold miners despite conventional control measures. So we wanted to see whether we could do something different to try to reduce TB rates among gold miners. Some experts have described the results of this study as disappointing, given the extremely high burden of TB facing workers in the mines in South Africa, where there's also a high prevalence of HIV co-infection. Is it known, Professor, why this radical bid to cut down on TB among South African miners failed? Just again, maybe to explain what we tried to do, the idea was, so this was a study where in some gold mines, we attempted to screen every single member of the workforce. So we were working in gold mines which had anything between 1,000 and even over 10,000 workers at the mine. And so in these mines, we offered screening for TB to every single person. 
the idea being that if we could identify all the people who had active TB disease and so might be not only ill themselves but also able to transmit TB to another person, we wanted to identify all of those people and put them onto treatment so that they would first improve their own health but also not transmit TB to other people. But then in addition to that, because we know that the great majority of gold miners, if they don't have active TB disease, they have what we call latent TB, means that they have TB, if you like, sleeping in the lungs, which can reactivate and cause disease later on. So we aimed to treat not just those people who had active disease, but also the people who had latent TB infection, which we can treat with a course of isoniazid preventive therapy. We aimed to treat everybody in the entire gold mine. Could part of the reason be that TB transmission in the mining communities may be higher than realized? I think it probably is higher, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think partly it's because there is just so much TB in the mines. So, so many people have TB that people within the mines are constantly being exposed to other people who've got TB, whether they know it or not, and so they become infected again. And so we see amongst the miners people who are getting TB many times. So I think we do believe that there is more TB transmission in the mines than there is in other parts of the country. What about mining companies? What role are they playing in finding a lasting solution to this problem? So mining companies have been doing what is recommended conventionally in terms of providing free access to TB treatment and making sure if a person has TB that they complete their treatment. And they've been doing that as well. They have been doing screening for TB using x-rays and that's done at least once a year so they've been doing all of the things that are recommended but I think in the context of these very powerful risk factors of silica dust disease and then also HIV I think the conventional control measures have not been enough to contain TB. You've suggested a longer potentially continuous course to better control TB. What should such a course entail in your view? Obviously we're very disappointed that our intervention which was a very big intervention we are disappointed that that did not have the effect that we were hoping for because at the end of the study it had not made a lasting difference. I do want to emphasize that the isoniazid preventive therapy that we were giving to prevent TB did work for the people while they were taking it. The problem was that the effect wore off very quickly so we didn't get the lasting effect that we were hoping for. What we think is that we need to do more to prevent TB but that there is not one magic bullet that is going to solve the problem. So we think we need to do a combination of different things, so what we're calling combination TB prevention, so putting together all the different things that could make a difference. So I think we need to use better diagnostic tests so that we can pick up TB more quickly. Once a person has been found to have TB, we need to make sure that they start their treatment very quickly because Often in many TB programs, there can be a surprisingly long gap between a person being found to have TB and starting on TB treatment. We need to close that gap. We need to make sure that people who have HIV are taking antiretroviral therapy so that that reduces their risk by bringing up their CD4 count and strengthens their immune system. And maybe we need better treatment for TB preventive therapy, treatments that will last for longer than isoniazid alone seems to. 
That was Alison Grant, Professor of International Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, speaking to Elizabeth Mapari. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.44 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Tracy Boomgard up next with our economics news. Thank you, Lulu. Talks to resolve a wage strike in South Africa's platinum sector will enter its second day today. Trade union AMCU downed tools last Thursday at the world's three largest platinum producers, demanding a $1,150 entry-level salary per month. The government broker talks are being held under the auspices of the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration, the CCMA, in the country's capital, Pretoria. Rulani Beloy reports. As the strike enters the sixth day, CCMA Director Narin Khan says they remain confident that a solution will be found to resolve the impasse. She says AMCO and the platinum mining companies, Amplats, Implats and Lonmen are willing to talk to each other. The talks have been scheduled to continue until tomorrow. Platinum producers have offered salary hikes of between 7.5% and 8.5%, saying AMCO's demands are unaffordable. The union maintains that their demands are for a decent living wage. As the strike continues, both the union and the mining companies are losing millions of rains. Meanwhile, police and mine security officers have fired rubber bullets to disperse a group of striking miners at the Kusaleka shaft of Anglo-American Platinum in Rustenburg in South Africa's northwest province. Clashes erupted this morning when the group threw stones at vehicles making their way to the shaft. Mine security advised a group of mine officials not to force their way through the crowd, citing fear for their safety. A large police contingent has been deployed at Kusaleka to keep an eye on the protesters. Angola has over 7 billion barrels of oil potential in onshore blocks and production rights will soon go on sale. State-owned company Sonangol says the 10 blocks that it will award have great potential. Earlier this month, Sonangol announced that 10 new blocks would be concessioned before the end of the year. The new wells would boost its current production of 1.7 million barrels a day and 12.6 billion barrels in proven reserves. Exploration is set to start next year. Angola lags behind Nigeria as Africa's biggest producer of crude oil. Oil accounts for about 96% of its exports and 46% of gross domestic product. The Ugandan shilling is expected to remain on a firm footing against the dollar as limited corporate demand for dollars outweighs the impact of a recent ratings downgrade. In Nigeria, the central bank's support is expected to keep the Naira stable. Meanwhile, the Bank of Botswana is due to auction its 14-day certificate treasury bill. Kenya's main share index edged lower yesterday as foreign investors booked profit while the shilling closed steady. 
The European Union has released $192 million in aid to Guinea after resuming full cooperation with the West African nation following a successful return to civilian rule. And a Ugandan finance ministry official has announced that Uganda has shelved plans to issue a eurobond as it can borrow money more cheaply from China. Honda Motor last year exported more cars out of the United States than it imported into the country. Honda North America's executive vice president Rick Shostek has described this milestone as one that's been 30 years in the making. Honda has put more than $2.7 billion into expanding its North American auto plants in the past three years. The cars were shipped to 50 countries with most of the exports going to Mexico. The U.S. dollar is currently trading at 11.13 South African rands, at 8.93 Botswana pullas and 5.51 Zambian quaches. It is also trading at 0.60 British pound and 0.73 to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,258 and platinum at $1,413 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $108.55 a barrel. And you are listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you, Tracy. Figla Lingwati up next with the sports news. Now, sports update this hour. International Olympic Committee IOC President Thomas Bach says athletes could make political statements if they so wished at press conferences during the forthcoming Sochi Winter Olympic Games, but not during the events themselves. This, he says, is a standard procedure in all the sport events where athletes could be punished if they made political statements or gestures during competition or at a medal ceremony, but they were free to say whatever they wished at the press conferences. The run-up to the first Winter Games in Russia, which gets underway in the Black Sea Resort on the 7th of February, have been mirrored in controversy amid corruption allegations, terror threats, and a Russian law banning gay propaganda among minors. And in cricket news, Zimbabwe Cricket Board has turned down a once-off test against South Africa before the top-ranked South Africans host Australia next month. This is due to the player strike and serious financial difficulties. Zimbabwe cricket spokesman Lavmo Banda says the Zimbabweans are not able to accept the offer and will instead play two tests and a limited over series against South Africa sometime around August. Zimbabwe's players have been on strike since last year over unpaid wages and bonuses and ZC has also had to cancel tours by Sri Lanka and Afghanistan. South Africa was left without any international cricket throughout January when India shortened its tour and dropped a planned third test. After a 5-0 Ashes drubbing of England, Australia's test squad arrives in South Africa on, the, on Wednesday for a three-match series. And in swimming news, South African swimming coach Graham Hill says 
He is confident the swimmers heading to Australia Perth for the upcoming BHB Billiton Aquatic Series in Perth are the bright future of South African swimming. Although the men's team includes the likes of Shad Leclaw, Miles Brown, Charles Cross and Darren Murray, the women's team has just one swimmer with real experience in Karen Prinsloo. South Africa swimming coach Graham Hill explains. We, we're not asking the, the juniors to go there and beat uh, world champions and, and Olympic champions, uh, but we're asking them to, to perform to the best they can perform and obviously try to improve and, and to be able to stand up and race the best in the world and, and, and deliver at, at the best level they can. Obviously, we're going to look to the likes of Chad, Miles, Corin, Troll, Darren, those that have been around, been to big Olympic Games and that, they're going to have to produce uh, some big swims for us and, and, and carry the flag for us there. And in bowling, the South Africa's elite bowlers will have a final chance to impress the selectors at the end of the month as they target coveted places in the national team for the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, Scotland from the 23rd of July to the 3rd of August. Five men and five women lawn bowlers will represent the country at the multi-sport showpiece together with two visually impaired and three disabled bowlers. The bowlers will hope to repeat the national team's superb performance at the previous quadrennial games. And finally, Tunisia national women's handball team has booked a place in the upcoming World Handball Championship 2015 in Denmark. They'll be joined by DR Congo and Angola who finished third. Tunisia beat Democratic Republic of Congo's 23-20 in Algiers to book themselves a ticket for the global showpiece. The national women's team have earned a ticket for the World Championship 2015 alongside DR Congo and Angola. And that's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Raz and Shan at the Sawa. Deadly violence continues in the Central African Republic. UN urges countries to stop paying ransoms to terrorist groups. And African countries urge to fully fund AU programs. That wraps up Africa Raz and Shan for today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Namagaza, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or follow us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1 or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Johnny Clegg with Ebola Leto.
So 